0: Here's a special treat for you, a recording from former Maya guest and yoga teacher Kirsten Johnson on her secret recipe for collard greens.
1: I don't have an exact recipe that I follow. I just rely on the ancestors and instinct to guide me when I'm cooking soul food. But here's how I make greens. I start by bathing the greens. And I like the word bathing instead of washing because it sounds like they're being prepared for a special ritual. And washing just sounds like you're doing something to a dirty item. And since I don't cook greens very often, I like it to be a special ritual. Sometimes I cut them or sometimes I just tear them with my hands really getting into the earthiness of the greens. And the cooking starts by sauteing onions until they're translucent. And then I add smoked turkey, neck bones, if I'm being healthy, or sometimes I just use ham hocks and simmer that in some more water. And then next I add some chicken broth because it gives a little bit more flavor and more water if I need. Bring it to a boil and throw in my washed, freshly bathed greens. I use mostly collards, but then I throw in a little bit of mustards with a lot of chopped garlic lot a lot of chopped garlic sprinkle in some pepper because you know i like it a little spicy and salt and pepper to taste after i set them in the boiling water for a little bit i just turn it down and let it simmer not too long and at this point i like to cover it and then leave it on the burner the greens will still be a little bit al dente but will continue to cook inside the pot And the reason why I do this is because I usually start the greens earlier than any other food and then they can sit and soak up all the goodness but not be soggy by the time it's ready to eat. Nobody likes mushy greens. So you can always heat them up again before they serve or you can taste them and if they need a little bit more cooking then, you know, throw a little bit of heat on them. And then, of course, I got to top it off with a little bit of crystal hot sauce because, you know, I like it a little spicy. So that's my unofficial recipe. And I say when you're ever you're cooking soul food, you just cook from the soul. you keep adding the spices, connecting with the ancestors until they say or whisper in your soul, "That's enough, baby. That's enough.
0: Hi, friends, Welcome back. I'm your host, Megan Morgan. And once again, it's time for Maya, My Yoga Audio. You might recall some few episodes back, I did a post and it was a blog post, but it also turned into a podcast episode talking about um, how food helps heal us and some realizations that I'd had about foods that I'd grown up with and grown to love and That's translated into many other areas uh, in my life since then. Most recently, I completed a juice fast, a three-day juice fast. My friend and fellow yoga teacher, Mariah Miles, who's going to be an upcoming guest on the show, has started a company called Positive Life Juice Company. And I agreed to be kind of a a trial tester, um, purchasing the product and also to give her honest feedback about it. And what I will say, is it was great. Day three was difficult and I was ready to start having food again, and uh, solid food again. And it, it got me thinking back on some other things that I've been researching and thinking about in terms of food. So as many of you know, my family and I immigrated to the United States um, just about nine years ago, it'll be nine years ago this fall. And there's a history here, particularly an African-American history Um, that stems from a lot of Southern cooking um, that's prevalent throughout the United States. Thank goodness uh, that it didn't just stay into the South, but it caused me um, to look into some of these dishes which are so common and well-known here, which honestly I didn't grow up with um, in Canada whatsoever. It didn't, didn't quite seem to make it so far North, or if they have um, it's not the same. And it wasn't something that I was exposed to. And I I wanted to share what you, with you what I found out because I was really surprised by a lot of things that I discovered. And the first thing was macaroni and cheese. Now, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but i I got to be honest with you. The only macaroni and cheese that I had ever had growing up was the Kraft box macaroni and cheese. And we loved it. We were like, This is this is great stuff. So moving to the US and discovering there's a whole other macaroni and cheese that has nothing to do with crack foods. Um, I wanted to uh, get into and share with you. And so I don't know if you knew this or not, but former president, former US president Thomas Jefferson is actually credited with bringing macaroni and cheese to the Americas after he experienced a version of it in Europe. And it was actually the work and tweaking of his enslaved chef, James Hemmings. However, brother, I believe, of Sally Hemmings, who is also mother to his children, um, it's, it's his twist on the, on the recipe that put the dish into rotation um, in the South and made it the truly celebrated dish of many Americans to this day. So Hemmings um, was actually, James Hemings was trained by a French chef while in Europe uh, visiting with Jefferson, but what, it was his twist on macaroni and cheese that Jefferson preferred once it was brought back to the United States. And so Hemings actually achieved his freedom from slavery after teaching another slave, his brother Peter, coincidentally, how to create Jefferson's favorite meal, among other things in the household. So Peter Hemmings made a pie called macaroni at an early 1800 state dinner hosted by, uh, Thomas Jefferson, which introduced the dish to, um, America's political elite. It became so popular over time, however, that Kraft Foods introduced the quick and easy quote unquote Kraft Dinner recipe box in 1937. But as I've mentioned before, do not suggest this product to anyone who is a true macaroni and cheese lover. There's a great, um, Netflix documentary series called High on the Hog How African-American Cuisine Transformed America, where you actually meet the descendants of the Hemings family and learn more about the evolution of this dish. So incredible. Highly encourage you um, to watch that Netflix documentary. I learned a ton and it was it was fantastic. So the next dish I wanted to introduce to you and it's um, it's a little more recently introduced re- introduced to the United States. It's called injera bread. Now if you're um, a local here in Sacramento, you're in luck because there are a few Ethiopian food restaurants um, that you've had to choose from and chances are if you've been to Queen of Sheba on Broadway, which I have many, many times, um, you'll have experienced this and So the spotlight for um, injera didn't really become truly popular in the United States until after 1980, when increased immigration from East Africa allowed more of us to taste this wonderful crepe type bread food, which is made of teff flour, which happens to be the tiniest grain in the whole world. So it originates in what is now Ethiopia and Eritrea. Um, but injera itself is actually thousands of years old. And the strongest evidence of injera cooking dates back to at least 600 AD, when the first um, mitads or traditional round hot plates were found in excavations of the ancient city of Aksum. So I've found, I know in the previous podcast, I was talking about crepes growing up with my grandmother's um, crepes from Belgium. Um, So the texture of these injera breads are very similar to the Belgian crepes I grew up with but they taste um, much different. So injera interestingly is your plate and it's your cutlery because traditionally this food is shared around one big plate kind of family style and diners use small pieces of this bread that they hold in their fingers to pick up one mouthful at a time. Uh, The food itself is also presented on top of one large injera. So all the delicious flavors and spices sink into it and you can eat that too. The first time I experienced injera was actually in Canada. There was a New Year's Eve uh, when my husband, now husband uh, Richard and I, we uh, wanted to go out for somewhere to eat, and we hadn't made any reservations. And it was, you know, it's really expensive. And we were in Ottawa, which is very, very cold in January, late December, early January. And we went to somewhere local around our apartment, and they welcomed us with open arms. It's it was so inexpensive. It was it was just ridiculous, and it was wonderful. We just sat around on these cushions and had this beautiful food we'd never tasted before. So it's a great opportunity to be in community, whether you're with one other person um, or a group of friends. So if you're here in Sacramento, you're in for a treat, head over to Queen of Sheba's. Um, You won't regret it. It has a a slightly sour, the bread itself. Um, It's kind of like a sourdough bread taste on its own, but this is why it tastes so good with all the spices to be found in the other um, Ethiopian dishes. And get this injera is naturally gluten-free teff flour is gluten-free um and the traditional dishes are all available with or without meat including numerous vegan and vegetarian options so want to support a local business that i I do personally happen to love and also healthy food there are so many great options uh, for you to try this so the next um food that I did some research on that I wanted to share with you is about something that has been jokingly referred to on social media of hot salad but it's also a favorite American dish that's typically called just greens or collard greens. So a short history is that collard greens actually originated in Greece and are one of the oldest members of the cabbage family. So while the plant is now grown all over the world Historians say that it originated in the Americas in Jamestown, Virginia in the 1600s. And so the way it evolved and is prepared throughout the African diaspora is a process that actually hasn't changed much since ancient times. It's hot, seasoned, and delicious. So raw greens are first picked and then stewed down, often including salted pork or turkey necks. Vegan and vegetarian versions are around as well, much more now than I would say in the last few decades. But collard greens are nutritious and are one of the few vegetables that African-Americans were allowed to grow for themselves and their families during slavery. So even after emancipation, cooked greens were a comfort food and they still are today. Uh, Many people cook this dark and leafy vegetable down into like a low gravy and drink the juice straight from the pot. It's like a vegetable broth. Or you can soak it up with cornbread. It makes me hungry talking about all this food. But I love hearing about great recipes, knowing their history, um, and then how we can incorporate that into our palates today and and what are our twists and turns um, on how we may incorporate that into our families and, and what we learn about that. So speaking of cornbread, to go with collard greens wanted to talk about some cornbread. Um, One of our favorite parts of enjoying soul food has got to be cornbread. And undeniably, our love of cornbread is much older than we might think. And we owe a huge thank you to Indigenous Americans who have used corn for countless generations before settlers even arrived in the Americas. Corn was and still is used to prepare many kinds of Native American staple dishes, everything from grits to pancakes, breads, even alcoholic beverages. But once settlers and the enslaved became a part of the North American landscape too, corn became a replacement for African um, starchy food favorites like cassava, plantains, and yams that couldn't be found or even grown here at the time. There are many ways that you can prepare cornbread, as you can imagine. And recipes, this was an interesting thing, and I ran this by friends of mine who are actually from the South. So I discovered recipes from the North tend to involve sweetener and, and taste more like a dessert, whereas recipes from the South do not. Southern recipes often contain lard or other animal fats and more salt. But the beauty of cornbread is how many varieties there are and how something so wonderful comes out of truly humble ingredients. At its most basic, cornbread is water, salt, and cornmeal. That's all you need. So the variations that happen regionally and then traveled out through the rest of North America are incredible. You can bake it, fry it, cast iron skillet it, keep it simple or keep it sweet. Or what about in stuffing, making it more savory and spicy, perhaps with peppers and onions mixed in? If you have a favorite memory or recipe associated with cornbread, I would love to know. The recipe I've been using, um, I found online from one of my favorite Canadian writers, his name is Lawrence Hill. And he shared, I believe it was his grandmother's favorite recipe and maybe I'll share that as a post over on the my.yoga.audio Instagram if you're interested in in trying it because it is fantastic and by far one of the best ones um, I've ever made outside of a mix. I'm not a talented baker. I'm better at cooking than baking, but I can get this recipe right. And then finally, so... We just talked about how um, corn became kind of like a starch replacement, wanted to get into sweet potatoes. So today is Sunday, the day that I'm recording this, and uh, we had sweet potatoes for lunch today, along with some eggs. And many of us love sweet potatoes in pies, in fries, but it's really great when it's mashed or sliced as a dish all on its own and it has a unique black history in the United States as well. So sweet potatoes found their way to the United States because of the transatlantic slave trade, but also by accident. People who were stolen and enslaved from West Africa were used to a diet that included plenty of yams, which is a different type of root potato that looks and tastes quite different from the orange-hued ones most of us are familiar with today. So true tropical yams are buttery yellow on the inside with a tough yellowish peel on the outside. But sweet potatoes, which are orange, um, it's because those true yams, though buttery yellow yams couldn't be found easily back then, plantation owners brought over the orange ones instead. And, you know, people adapted out of necessity, but it's not the same. So you can get into <laughs> endless arguments with people about it because the names are interchanged, sweet potato and yam. But if you've tasted both, you'll know there's a distinct difference uh, right away. So I, I urge you to look up um, both of them, true yams and true sweet potatoes and, and taste the difference. So sweet potatoes were often historically served as a dessert, roasted open over open fires and seasoned with spices or mashed. But over time, and with increasing access to technology and modern ovens, this evolved into formal pies with pie crusts, presented in a similar way to other sweet-tasting foods like apples, peaches, and blueberries. And while it was popular throughout the American South, the Great Migration that occurred after slavery was abolished meant that many brought these recipes and memories of sweet potatoes with them. And today, sweet potatoes are a staple part of many American and especially African American households. I'm curious um, if you yourself have tasted both yams and sweet potatoes, and do you love them? Do you love them both? Now, this series of articles and research that I did about the these historically African-American foods were done during Black History Month, which is celebrated in February every year throughout the United States and Canada, but I'm sharing it now. It's in the middle of summer, corn is in season. It's the perfect time um, to be using corn in your recipes. Um, sweet potatoes are actually also in season, collard greens always are, and you know, macaroni and cheese could be made at any time. We don't need to just pick one month out of the year to to celebrate the history of a particular food, of a particular people, um, and, you know, essentially the history of this land and how it's impacted us. So I'd love to hear you, hear from you. Comment on the post on Instagram. I'd love to receive an email from you if you're interested in coming on the show and talking about the history of food in this country, especially. So you can reach me at myyogaaudio at gmail.com. So that's M-Y-Y-O-G-A-A-U-D-I-O at gmail.com. And for now, I hope you enjoyed this short and sweet episode on the history of just a few of our favorite African-American foods in the United States. Bye for now.